have a few reflections tonight on our yogi jobs that each one of us has. And I hope by the end of uh, these reflections, uh, we get a little closer to not so much methods and practical hints as to how to do your yogi job, although I'll try to offer a little bit of that, but more to a totally different attitude, uh, which I feel uh, is tremendously advantageous in terms of our total practice, which is to say our total life. For the most part, I think, maybe totally, uh, let's just start with a a simple aspect of it to straighten it out for you. Uh, When you have come to IMS in the past, uh, probably, even definitely, you've had a choice, right? People have given you a choice. What yogi job would you like to have? And if you like to work with the soil, you become a gardener, and if you like to be with food, you help out in the kitchen, and so forth. So on this retreat, we changed that. I don't know if any of you noticed. We randomized it. In other words, everyone was just assigned a job. Um, Why? What's the value of that? The first one is nice, too. It's kind of cozy. You get to do, at least some of the time, something something that you like to do that's uh, more compatible uh, fewer blips, and it can add to the coziness of good food and a nice room. Now there are many more nice rooms. And just the overall coziness of a retreat, which, of course, we know isn't always so. Um, the logic behind it is, is a simple one. When I practiced in Asia, mainly this uh, this this was learned in Korea and Japan, they had a very different system. There were two systems that I practiced with, both of which I found quite valuable, in addition to the ones where you make your own choice. Each choice somehow has certain advantages and certain disadvantages. In this one, um, the first one, um, if you're working with a teacher over an extended period of time, which means it's residential, you're living there, Uh, there is a main teacher who gets to know you. And this particular teacher, and it's not unusual, assigned the job that you needed rather than the job that you wanted. So when I came there first, I I had some sponsors, Korean sponsors, who went on and on about how I was an ex-university professor and taught at this school and that school. And uh, you'd think I'd get at least a library for that, but they put me in the toilet. (laughs) So you understand what's what's involved. Uh, It's not that we're trying to make the retreat living hell for you, but um, if you make it too cozy, sort of when the yogi needs grow to long grocery lists, uh, when uh, everything is just so comfort-oriented, something gets lost in that. Again, I'm not advocating the other extreme, where perhaps we uh, don't go to sleep at all and uh, sleep sitting up. This goes on. Uh, but rather what that does is it, uh, it presses you in certain ways. It pushes certain buttons in our language. And these can be very, very useful ones, useful buttons. The other method is Uh, Another one that I found very useful, where you rotate. Again, that requires being at the place much longer than we are going to be here. And so you get um, jobs that you like, like I always like cleaning up the meditation hall. I love that. And other jobs you don't like so much. And what you learn is how to uh, let go of what you've just gotten attached to. You've enjoyed cleaning up the meditation hall. And then when your time to rotate comes, you just learn to let it go. And for, of course, at first, you're not necessarily doing that. You find yourself holding on. 
But you do learn, or you get closer to understanding how to let go and to move on with what is next. And it keeps going like that. So you, uh, you're assigned, and this is a Zen tradition, to use the stick in the hall to whack people when they're asleep. Here, we're more gentle. I just talk when I see you asleep. I don't know if you've noticed, some of you think I'm psychic, that when I say things, oh, that you were just talking about what was going on in my mind. Not in the least. I just see somebody on the edge of dozing off, so I say something, anything. (laughs) There, they're more direct with a stick. Um, The reason I want to talk about uh, the yogi job is because I want to put it in the context, uh, if we have time tonight, a context of the overall retreat, and even bigger than that, just our life, a life of practice. So that it would affect staff, it would affect uh, what we do here. By and large, what gets featured when you come to a retreat like this is sitting and walking. For most people, it's sitting. That's really why we came here, right? To clock in a lot more hours on the cushion. People talk this way. Walking's good, too, and as you go on, you get to like it better and see its value. And for some people, they're almost interchangeable. Some people prefer walking. But by and large, sitting is it. Uh, And it's no wonder it is, that as you look around, and there's the Buddha sitting wherever you look. Now and then he's standing. Once in a while, he's lying down. But he's never vacuuming. (laughs) So it's easy to get uh, the wrong idea. So we come to uh, uh, feature this, especially this room, it's called Yogi Land. When people on staff leave their work, when they have some time to sit, they go into Yogi Land and they come back to work from Yogi Land. And there's a lot of the language here gives away to me a certain attitude. Uh, One that not only has consequences for how we practice here, but when we go home. And that's why I think it's important to do it. Um, When you come into interviews, typically you're asked about how your practice is and you start talking about your sitting. Sometimes you might talk about your walking, but that's much more rare. Uh, The rest of what's going on here, perhaps if you're having a really difficult time with a roommate, then that comes up and that becomes a subject of the interview. But by and large, we talk about the sitting a lot. So we encourage you to be mindful all the time in all four postures, sitting, standing, walking, lying down. But we never ask you about some of the other stuff, or very rarely. So it's easy for you again to realize it's about sitting, no matter what they say, about integration, whole, holistic this and holistic that. It's mainly about sitting, and if we can do enough of it and go deeply enough into that, in that posture, we'll break through and then we won't have to worry about all this nonsense. I wish you were that simple. I honestly do not think it is. I don't think it ever has been that way. Um, At any rate, there's no accountability. There's no interest in a certain way. Uh, A number of years ago, actually 10, I think, I visited one of Corrado's teachers who is a Catholic nun. She's an enclosed sister. She's hardly ever left this place, what, 35 years or more? Yeah. And you talk to her through what? She's locked on one side and we're on the other side. Very, very perceptive person. Uh, She knew nothing about Buddhism but completely understood my practice. And uh, we were, at that point, getting ready to start a center in Cambridge, an urban center, and we were um, talking about a form that we had developed Uh, out of necessity, where we would have people do a retreat where they sit on two weekends and also in the evenings. Uh, And then during the day, we would be encouraged to bring mindfulness into their daily life. And then she asked a simple question. She said, well, do you ever, is there any accountability? So I said, what do you mean, accountability? She said, well, you just encourage them to be mindful at work, mindful at home with their children, mindful at school, uh, but still, uh, you don't 
check. You don't check on them. I said, no, we don't. He said, they'll never do it. <laughs> she was right. So we changed that form, and it really made it much more interesting. Uh, every evening when people come back from a day of doing what they do in their normal life, in families, work situations, school, etc., we go into that. So there's a clear message that this is really practice. It's not just a cliché, a high-class cliché. Uh, it's very difficult to get this message across because so many of us have been wounded in daily life. And so we come to this to kind of get out of the range of fire. We come to IMS, CIMC, and all these places like that. Typically nice, wooded area, gentle people, vegetarian, totally different than where the rest of our life is. And then you get a message which, say, which is saying, I know you got wounded out there in the combat zone, but the practice includes the combat zone. The practice is not just going to your latest initial or nearest initial retreat center and just creating another escape because that world is just too noisy, too dirty. People are too mean out there. I think the practice is... Uh, the whole practice is much more wholehearted than that. And we as lay people have no choice, to put it bluntly. Now, some lay people spend a lot of time in retreat settings and are, in effect, like uh, contemplatives who are monks or nuns. It's really, in many ways, not so much a matter whether you're a monk or a nun, because most monks and nuns are not contemplative anyway. So there are lay people who are cut out, you could say, whose temperament for all kinds of reasons, who will perhaps spend most of their life in settings like this. I'm not at all against that. It's very much an individual matter. There's no one practice that fits everyone. It's not ready-made stuff. It really has to be tailored. But there are certain issues that to me seem clearer and clearer as we go on. One of the main ones is that as lay people, by and large, overwhelmingly, we spend our time in families, in work situations, in schools, with people. Uh, often, most of the people are not meditators. We're in the world. And the question is, do we dare to live? Or is our life just going to be uh, put in our time, kind of cope with things, put up with it, make all these jokes about how stressed out we are in our job, and then romanticize the retreat setting, all out of proportion, to run here to get some kind of magical whatever it is, only to be thrown out again. You know, this retreat will end, and then we'll have to go back to the combat zone. Now, in a small way, the retreat setting is like that as well. That is, the main thing is in this room. If we can do enough in this room, then we're going to be all right. Your yogi job is important, and I'm sure you get encouragement to do it. But I think we have to go beyond that, and it's not simply to get work out of you, but actually to do correct practice. Because what I'm talking about is not a technique or a method so much as a whole attitude where what we're interested in is how we live. For me, there's only daily life. I mean, this is daily life, too. There Everyone has one. We all have a daily life. Now, I know there's a language that has sprung up where there's formal practice and daily life, and we make uh, a rather sharp contrast between what goes on here and what goes on there. There meaning where we go back to, where we just came from. And of course there are differences. But if on this retreat we throw away the opportunity to practice wholeheartedly in every situation then we're perpetuating that kind of split. We have a wonderful opportunity to pretend to be whole people here. I don't know if you know what I'm trying to say. I realize that many compartments of life here are limited. We're not talking to one another. Uh, there's a lot of things we're not doing. But there is a daily life here. Some of it has to do with the yogi job, and I want to focus on that, and then let it spread out into the rest of the time that we spend here, spend here, which is not in this hall and which is not walking. And if we see it with the right perspective, 
somehow when the time comes to go home, when that time comes, uh, it won't be this uh, kind of grand canyon separating the retreat from home. And when we get home, it's not that we'll live for the day when we can get back to IMS, saving up our money so that we can come to the next retreat. In the meantime, much of our life is lived out there, is lived in the, the world of money and power and so forth. It's just a fact. And I, my own feeling is that the practice is designed to do that. What I'm saying is not revolutionary or radical. It's just sensible. Um, the different styles of approaching this, which appear in, during a retreat and also, of course, when we leave a retreat, one that I've noticed is one where we, which is, I think I've mentioned enough, where we extol the sitting over and above everything else. That becomes the barometer. And daily life is also taken into account, but mainly insofar as it helps you be a good sitter. Like if you have a family and school, take care of it. This, some of this comes from uh, a monastic context where lay people didn't practice the way we do. This is more in Asia, but it's, it's here too. Because some of the teachers who come from Asia haven't, are not fully exposed or used to lay people. It's, it's new to us too, who practice in many ways as hard or harder than the monks or nuns. So the advice might be um, to manage your family situation. You know, see to it that there's enough food on the table, a roof over your head, the kids get some education, the wife or the husband feels taken care of, so there isn't a whole lot of screaming and yelling and fighting, which will interfere with your practice. <laughs> Rather than seeing it uh, in a more positive light as um, life itself, uh, in no way inferior to when we're up here, and in no way superior either. The perspective I'm suggesting is one where uh, everything is of value. And a very simple, to me, a simple insight is helpful. Sometimes people ask, uh, what, is, what is life for? It just seems obvious that the, the simplest answer I could give before I ever did meditation, since learning it and now, is it's for living. I mean, uh, that seems pretty obvious. And so if we become so specialized in the way in which we perceive practice, and then, in a sense, imprisoned in that notion, come to view everything that's other than formal practice in a certain way, i.e. inferior, not worthy of our best and most wholehearted attention, uh, there's a kind of split we've created. You don't get hospitalized for it, but it is kind of schizophrenic. Okay, so now we're here. Um, let me give you an image that has helped me a lot uh, since I work with the breath a lot. Uh, I find it useful. It's just a metaphor. It may or may not help you. It's the image of in order to fully take in life, you have to fully let go of what's old and gone, dead and past. In order to inhale properly, you have to exhale properly. So that, for example, let's say you are going from this situation. Let's say you've just been sitting. And maybe you've had a wonderful sitting and you're all teary-eyed about how happy you are to be here and that there's still most of the retreat left and it's very poignant. But the sitting comes to an end and your job is somewhere else, in the dishroom or cleaning pots. Can you fully exhale meditation, sitting meditation, in order to be able to fully inhale washing pots? It's not that the pots are superior to here, but they're also not inferior. When you finish pots, can you fully exhale pots instead of sort of, well, I had to do that and because of that I missed the sitting and uh, 
Why did I get this job? I want a job where I don't miss any sittings. Can we fully exhale that so that we then can take in the sitting or the walking or whatever's next? And the whole day is like that. That is, we fully let go of what should be let go of because it's over. It's the past. It's dead. So much of our life is in the grip of the past. Whether you talk about it as being through conditioning or through our, uh, this powerful attachment we have to what has happened to us, which gets between us and what is happening to us over and over and over again. And of course, when we talk about intimacy of practice, bare attention and so forth, what we're pointing towards is how to free ourselves from the grip, the tight grip of the past. Okay, so now you have your job, whatever that job is. Step number one, what is your job? Whatever, please think of your job right now. I'm getting more concrete now. Uh, What is your correct situation? Most jobs, uh, certain activities are featured in the job. And sometimes I may use examples from outside of uh, this retreat uh, to help you understand what I'm getting at. But what I'm trying to help us do is uh, focus on our yogi job here so that we can do it in a certain spirit for the remainder of the retreat. And then some of that spirit can carry over when we go back home and things are quite different. So a situation usually uh, or very often is clear. What is it that's supposed to be done here? For example, outside, if you get in the car, your correct situation is to drive. So it's obvious where, uh, once you've established that, where does your full attention go to driving? So we know what's being asked of us. That's a simple one. But even there, people don't take it seriously, right? Or we wouldn't have so many accidents. So whatever your, jo- your job is, is it clear as to what it is? Once that's true, if it is true, if it isn't, then uh, go into confusion or chaos or uh, whatever it is. In this case, you might have to ask someone. But it's very important to understand what is it that I'm attempting to do here. And, of course, quite related, what's the best way to do it? Then from that, if that's established, then can we give our full attention to it? You'll see that it's not very different from following the breath. The breath is assigned to you. You have an object. Follow the breath. Very clear. If you accept it, then you have a clear benchmark. Life isn't so neat and tidy sometimes. But let's say with your yogi job, once it's clear, then what's being asked is that you do it. If it's cutting vegetables, cut vegetables. Well, that sounds self-explanatory and easy to do. We've all done that millions of times. Uh, But this is not about being fastidious or industrious. There are many hardworking people in this world who do not awaken and whose practice, just the, whose work, as hard as it is, does not take them one inch closer to freedom or to wisdom or to compassion or anything else. It's just very hard work and they're good at it. We have two jobs always as yogis. One is the official outer job of cutting the vegetables, uh, cleaning the toilet, etc. And the other is uh, this word we keep hearing all the time of being mindful. But there's more to it than mindfulness. It's not just a concentrated stare or gaze at what we're doing, but the willingness to learn. Discernment, the willingness to, as we do our job, not only do it well externally, because you can do your job perfectly externally and be distracted inside, but we have a standard of, uh, I'll use the term intimacy of practice, And what that means is something like this. There's nothing between you and what you're doing. So that if you're chopping the vegetables and part of your mind is on what you're going to do after you finish or uh, being annoyed that it's taking so long or being bothered because someone uh, is doing it in a way that is not correct, 
someone else working with you, or endless, you know, the mind has no limit to what it can churn out. Now, the hand might be chopping, and the vegetables may be yet nicely chopped, and they all go into a beautiful meal. But what happened to your mind? From a certain point of view, uh, you were killing life in those moments because you weren't fully there. We were divided. This is a subtle one. Most people in life are not asked to hold this as something uh, worthwhile. But we are. It's asked of us. Now, the truth is, when you learn to do it and you get onto it, the two come together. As more and more you become sensitive to how... Uh, we humans do this a lot. We're doing something, and while we're doing it, doing it, we think about it. We think about what we're doing a lot. And as a result, that thinking is a barrier, a subtle one, but nonetheless a barrier. You know, some of you are taking notes. I'd appreciate it if you don't. Really, for a retreat, it's a whole different thing. This information is not so important. You can find it in books and tapes and videos. It's endless now. <laughs> okay, it's computerized, the Internet. And, uh, your job now is to listen. And if you're writing down notes, you're divided probably. My job is to talk. Tomorrow my job will be to listen. And I hope I'm really listening to you. And when I'm not, that I see it. My practice will see when the mind is divided, separated from what it's doing. Um, so the practice becomes seeing that, seeing how we know what has to be done. And it can be helpful before you start your yogi job to pause and just acknowledge what is it you're doing in this room. Because sometimes we get so um, obstinately familiar with what we're doing that we just do it a half alive. Pause. Take a few breaths. And what is it I'm doing here? I'm chopping the vegetables. Then do it. Really enter into it in a state of uh, aliveness, wakefulness. And then as you start to do it, little by little, don't make it oppressive. Begin to notice uh, whether or not you really are in touch with what you're doing. You'll probably find that at least some of the time, uh, wherever you are, the, the mind isn't. It's thinking about where you are, where you will be. It's approving, it's disapproving. Most of it's unnecessary. Now, there are some jobs where thinking is necessary in that moment. Then, of course, just think. But here the job would be just chop the vegetables, just clean the toilet, just, just, just. And you'll find that you aren't, and that's not a criminal offense. It's our practice. It, the, the answer to it or the way to do it is not so muscular, uh, full of will and strain, making the practice joyless. But it's more subtle. It's noticing how the mind is taken up with something else. Much of this is subtle. You're getting the job done. You, people will say, nice job, thank you. I appreciate that. But you walk out, but there's the more subtle yogi job is not just getting the bathroom clean, but caring for the mind, for the heart, in the process. And of course, self-knowledge comes up. That's why the randomization of jobs can be useful. We get a job where we don't feel particularly competent, or perhaps... As myself, maybe you're a professor or a professional and they assign you to the toilet and you find you have a little bit of snobbery. Here, I come all this way from wherever you came from. I pay all this money and they put me in the toilet. It's all right. Our practice is seeing that. It came out of you. We didn't implant that if that was a thought. It came out of you. And so little by little... When you approach work this way, it's self-knowledge, it's self-understanding. And in its own way, uh, quite as valuable as what we do in this hall. What I'm trying to uh, help us come to, help myself come to it as well, is where our practice is a seamless web. The great teacher really is life itself. And a lot of what we're doing here is we're turning ourselves into good students, better students. The curriculum is, couldn't be improved upon. 24 hours a day life is teaching. But there are very few students to take the course. 
What we're doing here is we're, in, we're developing the skills, first and foremost, paying attention. And out of that comes the ability to learn the lessons that life constantly teaches us. So, by extension, wherever you are is perfect, is a perfect place to practice. What if you had that really? Now, you've heard this before, right? It's old hat. The question is, are we doing it? Do we really get the significance of that sentiment or that approach to practice? That wherever you are, whatever you're doing, perfect. Those are the perfect materials for your practice. Couldn't be better. Because it's your life in that moment. And whatever we encounter is our life. If you more and more come around to that, then the practice becomes, I don't know, for me, just wonderful, even more wonderful than it already is when sitting is way up on the throne and everything else is kind of an adjunct in some way. Sitting is magnificent. Look, I love it. I'm not in any way qualifying that. It's just that if we treat it in a certain way, if we dip it in bronze, you know, and put it on our mantelpiece, then what we've done is subtly undermined the rest of life. And as lay people, that means most of our life. Think about it. Most of our life is not spent sitting. So it's imperative that we have an attitude that uh, turns the difficulties of being lay people to our advantage. That as you view it from a monastic perspective, these poor lay people, my God, you know, with children and mortgages and cars and now the job market is shrinking and boy, we're really lucky to be up in this mountain in this monastery. And of course they have a point. I mean, that's part of why monasticism uh, evolved and, and exists in the first place. However, we are not monks or nuns and we need a somewhat different practice. The basic principles are identical. When you attach, you suffer, whether you have robes on uh, or not. But we need a practice that, instead of making us feel second class because we're not in Thailand or we're not doing the three-month retreat, we need a practice that takes uh, full advantage of where we actually are. The fact is, we work, we raise families, we study, etc., we drive cars on the highway. If we can turn that around, and I'm suggesting that that is a practice that doesn't have to apologize to anyone, then it's a kind of freedom and the practice becomes richer, much. Now, where does the breath fit into all of this? By the way, what I'm saying by extension applies Take it from your yogi job to dressing, undressing, having a cup of tea, all the little odds and ends going to the bathroom that make up our day. If more and more you could understand that really the same thing is happening all the time, here is you encountering life once again, only now in the shower. The fundamental principle is always the same. You can be aware at any time and... And I think this is the, the genius of the Buddha in, in seeing the implications of breathing. We're breathing all the time. And what the Buddha did was simply to take advantage of an obvious fact that each and every one of us is breathing. Whatever situation we're in, we're never too busy to be breathing or we wouldn't be there. We'd be what is called dead. And so in Anapanasati, we're encouraged to keep the breath in mind throughout the day as much as possible. Clearly there are tasks uh, which make it impossible to stay with the breathing as you do it. As one that came to mind today, it's absurd, but there are jobs uh, that come close. Charlie Chaplin in modern times. I mean, I don't think he can follow Anapanasati. Remember when he was on the assembly line tightening the screws? Not much of a chance. But the breath, again, is not an end in itself in that way. Conscious breathing is used here to enable us to really develop mindfulness. Okay, now, here are a few hints, and then 
start doing it throughout the week and then bring stuff up in, in groups and in interviews, individual interviews. One way in which the breath is used is that as much as possible you, you unite conscious breathing with the task. When you learn how to do it, the conscious breathing actually helps you be more awake, more alert, more fresh, more in the moment, because the conscious breathing cuts down on thinking, sometimes eliminates it. There's much less unnecessary thinking, which is what separates us. It's a subtle film that's between us and what we're doing. Now, the more you do it, the more you practice breath awareness, of course, the stronger it becomes, the more natural it becomes, the more available and accessible it becomes as a friend, something you can turn to in most any situation or in many situations. So one way in which we use the breath is that uh, we unite it with what we're doing. The primary focus is in what we're doing. And at first you may experience the breath is in the background or alongside of you. Uh, but with practice, I've been doing this for a while, uh, more and more it's really like a unified field. That is, with the in-breath and out-breath, there is awareness of the way it is in that moment, whatever that moment is. And the breath helps me do that. It helps me be open to the moment. When it doesn't, then I let the breath go. The main thing is to be open to the way things are. Let's not get fixated on the breath. So one way is as a, in a sense, a servant, a strong supporter of uh, mindfulness in action. And there's another way where uh, Anapanasati is helpful. Uh, throughout the day, and uh, I, I know this better in, when we're home, you know, our life outside of the center, but I'm sure it exists here as well, there's kind of what you could call dead time. At least people behave as if it's dead. Uh, you're waiting for a light, red light to change to a green light, and you're either impatient or figuring something else out or cursing someone out or whatever it is. Or you're waiting for a clerk to fill out some papers so you, after you've paid for a purchase. Or you're waiting online to buy something. Or you're waiting for a plane to arrive or a train to arrive. We do a lot of waiting. Sometimes, in a lot of those situations, waiting for an elevator, etc., so little is asked of us. There's so little required of us in those moments, even if it's just a minute, 30 seconds, three minutes, that you can actually mostly turn to the breathing and just calm yourself. A corner of the mind is open to notice when your elevator has arrived so you can get in, to notice when red light has turned into green light to notice when your train has arrived. We're not trying to make you into bigger misfits. As you sit on the platform, following your breathing in, in bliss, and the train goes by. So it takes some wisdom, even there, to know uh, what to do and how to do it. So I would work with that. Of course, there are some situations that are comparable here. We do waiting as well. Sometimes the meal is delayed a little bit. Okay, instead of the things that perhaps you're doing, just stand and breathe, being ready to uh, move into action, to go through the line, get your food. And you'll probably find others waiting for a shower to free up or whatever it is. So little by little, the practice that we do in the hall, which, of course, is the breath a lot. Right now we're practicing shamatha. For those of you who are newer to this approach, using the breath exclusively to calm and concentrate the mind. As the retreat unfolds, uh, we'll be opening the field of attention up to include feelings, to include mind states, as we breathe in and as we breathe out. In general, what we're learning is with each breath to open up to the way it is, no matter what that way it is, is. We like it, we don't like it. We're learning to be in the moment, to be with what's there because it is there. This is our life right here, right now. So if we have a practice where we use the breath in the sitting, and if some of you, are, some of you are, are using it in the walking, and we start using it throughout the day a bit, you can see how that becomes a method that can help you in life. It's not simply limited 
to formal sitting meditation, it becomes a good friend throughout your life, through the many situations that you find yourself in. On this retreat, because we're relatively protected and safe, and things are slowed down and simplified, we can practice being a normal person. Do you see in what sense I mean that? Uh, In each situation, whatever it is, do it. Just wholeheartedly pour yourself into it. It's not with veins popping out of your neck, you know, trying to be 100% at one with what I'm doing. It's being fully present and noticing that you're not. Let me, um, in the very little time that we have left, just hint at another aspect which we'll, we can go into more towards the end of the retreat. Don't underestimate the power of mindfulness in daily life. For example, when more and more you really are, you've learned how to wholeheartedly do what you're doing and then to, when it's done, to let it go and to move on to the next thing, to fully exhale the situation that's over so you can fully inhale the next situation. When you're doing that in a wholehearted way, you, you forget the self. You have moments where the self goes into abeyance, where there's just doing where the function is carried out and because it's done wholeheartedly, there isn't someone who's doing it. We call it doerless doing. And from one end, looked at from one end, it contributes to our overall awakening, to enlightenment. Because in those moments, those are precious moments where the self-preoccupation is either weaker or not there at all. Maybe it's just for a few moments. But it's also full circle. The Zen tradition is very rich on examples of this sort. That is, if there's awakening, then awakenings uh, is to be manifest in whatever we do. Someone is asked, what is enlightenment? This is a typical teacher-student exchange. And the answer is eating rice and drinking tea. Well... Why is that enlightenment? Does does that mean if we go to the nearest Chinese restaurant, we'll get enlightened? I doubt it. What it means is it's just eating rice and drinking tea. There's no one who's doing it. There's no self-conscious eater, tea drinker, vacuumer, sitter, walker, etc., etc. So that the practice of enlightenment uh, is not you just... uh, You get enlightenment, some static notion, and then you're framed or something. You sit on a throne for the rest of your life. But rather you bring that clarity of mind into life as it is. And you fall down and you get up and you fall down and you get up. And now it's time to get up. Okay, to just walk. like to say a few more words about Yogi Jobs. I can hear some of you thinking, for God's sakes, we work hard all year We have a full life. We commute for two hours a day. We just want a simple, fast, little yogi job. And then just sit. And then we just want to go home. Get a few nice experiences, hear a few talks, some nice walks. Uh, (laughs) And I understand. In the short run, you're right. having now listened to a number of people in the groups and also in individual interviews, it would have been a lot easier. Just come in, as Some people have been coming here for a number of years, and you know exactly what yogi job you want. That's what I've been told. 
and you come early and you get it, and everything is nice and cozy. You just chop vegetables or wash this or whatever it is. Uh, great. It's like a uh, health spa. Nice vegetarian resort, you know, with a little sitting thrown in, of course. Um, and in the short run, that is more pleasant. And why do we have to talk so much about work? We already do enough of that at home. But in the long run, I hope that some of this uh, is at least the beginning of one perspective uh, which will facilitate practice, both here and when inevitably we return to where we came from. Uh, some of what I would like to do is just uh, very briefly review, reinforce uh, some of the things we said and perhaps elaborate on them to make sure there's no misunderstanding. Uh, and then I jotted down a few of the things that people were saying and maybe comment on some of them. Uh, first, uh, one to head off one misconception. Personally, I love to sit. I think it's precious, invaluable, and I'm always happy when I have time to do it. I take long retreats myself, just personal retreats, as much as I can and have for many, many years. I find that in no way a contradiction with uh, putting an emphasis on doing everything else that's other than sitting wholeheartedly. Uh, just it has never occurred to me to be in any way contradictory. Keep going. Uh, and yet, um, when I look through the Dharma scene, it seems if there are, including my own perspective, I'm not saying this is the, the last word, it is a word. Uh, I see so many variations on this theme. Uh, some of the problems in teaching include this. I've noticed over the years, and I've uh, checked with some others of uh, other colleagues. I think Corrado and I have talked about it. If you emphasize the sitting practice and really put a lot of energy into that and encourage people to sit and to come away to IMS or other places to do intensive practice, uh, the daily life part gets sloppy. So then you switch over to the daily life part. You say, no, that's really important. Just do everything wholeheartedly. Everything's as valuable as everything else. And then that becomes licensed to not having to sit so much anymore. And, well, maybe I won't go to IMS. Maybe I'll go to just do a, a normal person's vacation instead in July. So you go back and forth trying to balance uh, what tends to become polarized. And then among teachers, there are people who really emphasize the sitting and barely talk about daily life except follow the precepts and something like that, which is, of course, helpful. And you get the other extreme as well. Uh, you get, uh, there was, uh, many of you, I think, have read her book or met her. I've met her and read her book. Uh, Dr. Tin Tin, uh, who is here in her practice, which comes from a school in Burma, they don't sit at all. It's just daily life. And she said, quite openly here, to people from this community, that she hasn't sat in 20 years. She's a teacher of Vipassana. Okay, now, I'm not judging that. It's just I felt that took enormous courage to say that here. Uh, <laughs> It's like being a, a contraceptive salesman at the Vatican. I mean, just... Sorry, Brian. So, I mean, great, if that works for her. But, so this is one view, it's one perspective uh, on yogi jobs. That is, what is uh, being assumed is that if you can, sitting is special. It certainly is to me and probably is to most or perhaps all of you. It's special and then again it isn't. It's a, it's a tricky one. Uh, it's special uh, and then if you deify it, if you kind of fixate on it, suddenly it poisons itself. 
and it creates a very, very high-class kind of delusion, in my opinion, if you fixate on it. Um, why can't we see sitting as a beautiful practice that it is? And when we do it, really do it. And then when it's time to stop, for whatever reason, then do whatever else is next completely, 100%. To me, that is what the Buddha is saying. I don't think what I'm saying is revolutionary. It seems that I've read it thousands of times. It's over and over again. Um, and we as lay people, I feel, really need to hear this one. Because we have very busy lives. And we don't have time, most of us, to do that much sitting. Uh, so we have to, it's incumbent upon us, to really bring a very high quality of interest and, and attention in whatever we do. Um, There are also, in addition to the uh, conditions which vary for us, some of us have more leisure time, some of us don't, uh, there are temperamental differences. Not everyone is supposed to sit for 16 hours a day or for 10 hours a day. Not everyone's supposed to be a hermit. Uh, each one of us has to shape our own practice. It's by no means a guarantee that the more you sit, the more awake you'll be. I know that for a fact. It's not true which is not to say that sitting isn't precious, it is. Each one of us has to work within the limitations of our situation and also our temperament, predisposition. The key thing is the awakened mind, and that doesn't belong to any particular posture or place or ethnic group or gender or anything else. The awakened mind, uh, that can come into effect anywhere at any time. Many, many enlightenment experiences do not happen on the cushion, for all I know most. Which is not to say, don't sit, because the sitting contributes to a certain ripening that sometimes uh, breakthroughs happen in the oddest places. What I'm trying to say is, uh, to not use sitting as a means uh, to an end. Sometimes sitting is talked about um, well, sit, but the real test of your sitting is daily life. Sounds good. I mean, there's something to that. But then again, um, you have it the other way, where people will say, take care of your daily life, and then you'll have a much smoother kind of sitting. If you don't have any loose ends, you know, follow the precepts so people don't hate you, you're not wanted by the police. Uh, then when you sit down on the cushion, you have some chance at developing some, some inner peace. So each one, we're using one for the other. Personally, I don't view my practice that way. Uh, there's just life all the time. And there's no question that it's uh, interesting to see what, that no matter what happens on the cushion, uh, I can't rest on my laurels. That is, when I enter into a situation where action is called for, uh, there's a challenge there. And sometimes I find that what I thought was a, some extraordinary uh, liberation that I developed in a, an intensive practice retreat or on the cushion just falls apart in two seconds in Harvard Square. Um, but it's not that I take that to be the test, the litmus paper, the index, because I don't take any of it to be the index of something else. So what I'm saying is, there's just now. Uh, sitting is not it. Nothing, nothing is it. So the approach is more of seeing life as a whole. And within that, contemplative uh, practices, intensive practices like, like here, are invaluable for us as lay people and for, certainly for those who are uh, doing it uh, for many, many hours a day and so forth. Um, let, me, let me briefly review a, 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 some guidelines. You come to your situation. And by the way, when you hear what I'm saying, you'll see that it's really not that different or it's not different at all in the sitting practice. There's a very, very useful uh, teaching given by uh, a Japanese teacher named Dogen, which are instructions to the cook. And a lot of what he's saying is similar to what I'm saying. I mean, what I'm saying is similar to what he's saying. I learned it from him. 
And what's interesting is that if you read his other teachings on sitting meditation, he often uses the identical phrases and attitudes. There's no separation whatsoever. So that whether you're in the kitchen, this is specifically for the kitchen, but it's really about cooking your whole life. Or whether you're on the cushion, he has a, a similar frame of reference, even identical language and exuberance in the same way. Uh, and that's uh, saying something. Step number one, when you come into your situation, now you've been working for a few days, what is your situation? What is to be done? And here the jobs are relatively simple. Remember, what I'm hoping is that uh, in the rather simplified and safe and protected environment that we have here, some of what you learn can transfer back home and can become part of an attitude and a way of approaching life that goes beyond our life here at IMS. What is my job? And we've gone through that the other evening. So step number one is, uh, is finding that out, being very clear about what has to be done and how to do it. Uh, if that's clear, then the next step is to give our full, number two would be give our full attention to that which has to be done, our wholehearted attention. As we begin to do that, sometimes we learn that our response is inadequate, the way we're doing it is wrong. It's not producing good results. So we can revise our actions as we go along. If we pay attention and have the willingness to learn that as we pay attention to what we're doing, we can see certain refinements are necessary. We can see certain ways of behaving are not working. So the task, in a way, can become endlessly refined because we've set it about doing something, we're fully doing it, and we're seeing what's happening. And we're willing to learn from that seeing. As you can hear, that's not any different from what happens outside of your yogi job. Then third, if you get distracted, and we went into some detail the other evenings, that is, uh, you're doing X, but you're thinking about Y. Or you're doing X, and you're thinking about X, but X doesn't require any thought. <laughs> So the thoughts are between you and the activity. You're not intimate with it. Intimacy in the sense in which the term is being used here means an unmediated contact. There's no separation between you and what's happening. So the third is when you see that you're not fully doing what you're doing, uh, then just come back. See the distraction very often it just falls away. If you see you're thinking about this, that, and the other, it falls away, and then you're back with the task, and you have the chance of uh, being one with it. The fourth is doing three about 10 billion times. Or is every time you wander away, which will be over and over again, to come back. It's not that different from the work we've been doing with the breath. It's not different at all. So it requires some of the same qualities. Patience, an even-mindedness and an understanding uh, that it isn't perfection that we're, uh, we're not trying to perfect this and crucifying ourselves in the, in the process of doing it, but rather in each given moment we're, we're doing what we can uh, to be full and alive to what it is that we're attempting to do. And when we see that we're off, we just come back without judgment, without blame. Uh, life is like that. It's quite challenging, and so, of course, we're going to be distracted over and over again. The fifth is, when the distractions become formidable, that is, over and over again, it's usually wise to investigate. Now, sometimes, let's say if you have a job, here I think you have a better chance of doing what I'm saying, and sometimes at home as well. If something constantly is taking you away from your ability to, let's say, wash the dishes or, or vacuum, or dust in the library, whatever your job is, sometimes it, all it takes is just a few seconds. What's happening? Why is this so compelling? Very often what you may find, as I've found, is that it points to something that's unresolved in life, something that needs doing and we're not doing it, or something that we've been doing and it's time to cut it out enough. And unless we make that change, it's going to keep breaking into our attempts to be one-pointed our attempts to, uh, to do practice.
the one pointed, the uh, second one, to do things wholeheartedly. In some monasteries in uh, Japan and Korea, they talk about, let's say, when you're doing your job, it's not uh, just a kitchen job, but in this example they use, it's, it seems to always be the kitchen. Uh, they'll say, while you're cooking, if Manjushri himself comes into the kitchen and wants to talk to you, to you, you drive him right out with your broom. Just whack him and get him out. Now, Manjushri is a personification of wisdom. Now, just think of that as an extraordinarily high archetype. I don't know. If uh, St. Thomas Aquinas comes in and wants to talk to you, <laughs> not while you're cooking, out. You just run him right out. It's to give you a sense of the wholeheartedness that uh, is being asked for. Again, this can be done gracefully. It's not something with veins popping out and shoulders. It's, it's not that at all. It's just uh, fully entering into what you're doing. Here, um, let me give you a perspective that comes from uh, my own monastic experience I don't feel it's uh, limited to monastery life. In fact, the essence of it is something I feel we all need, perhaps even desperately, as a culture. Um, I'm taking some of what I'm saying, and I have written down some things that people said in the groups, and from Corrado's groups, and from other groups, persons in the past. And you may think you recognize yourself here. It may not be about you. I've taken the liberty of you know, mushing people together and something I heard four years ago from someone who was on uh, washing dishes and something from yesterday. And, uh, so don't get... And I'm not using anyone's name. And I've asked for permission in the few cases where I did speak to someone individually. To make a caricature of it, and this may or may not... Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.